curious what your experience of New Zealand was. You know, I I used uh, I still use that trip in my writing. I last year wrote a piece on uh, a piece about polyglottism, I guess you could say. And I when I was in New Zealand, I saw I happened to see in one of the hotel rooms I stayed in a news report on the Chinese language, uh, Mandarin, which I also study and I know one or both of you do as well. Uh, being introduced in certain schools. I think this was this was in like Rotorua. It was not a big town, uh, but the, the the news anchor reporting the segment asked a teacher in all seriousness. I, I detected no joking, no irony whatsoever. She said, "Well, aren't you afraid their little brains will explode?" <laughs> <laughs> I that stuck with me, uh, and I was like, "Well, I guess that is an attitude. This is still the Anglosphere." And there's still a concern that if you teach more than one language to a kid, their brain may well explode. Yeah. But uh, it, I don't, I'm not saying that was representative of New Zealand attitudes I encountered, but uh, it, was a bit, it was a bit dreamlike. I never quite got away from knowing that there were only 4 million people there. They, yeah. It never felt, uh, I mean, and 20 million sheep. So mm. I was always seeing them on the side of the road. And, yeah. you know, my mind was on driving on the other side and noticing the little details. But uh, it's... Uh, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I would go back, but it's not the easiest time to go to New Zealand, as I understand it. Yeah, no, it's, I've, had, I've talked to Simon about this quite a lot, um, just in terms of my own relationship with New Zealand now that I'm back here, you know, mm -hmm. and, and going, going over to the, the big wide world, um, you know, speaking Japanese, learning Chinese, you know, sort of very interested in different languages and sort of coming back and developing this, this kind of pigeon mix of different languages that I use with my <laughs> friends and then sort of remembering that the rest of New Zealand, you know, in a lot of cases is, you know, they don't really kind of connect with that idea and there's this whole other world out there and then there's sort of my my memories of growing up in, in small town New Zealand and it's sort of two different worlds. The East Asians who go to New Zealand, why are they there? The sort of Japanese people or Chinese people who you meet, whom you meet in New Zealand, what, what brings them there? Oh, there's a lot of different reasons, you know, I'm, I'm in Wellington at the moment and so it's, you know, quite a cosmopolitan place and I think people come here, you know, it's, 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 it's the, the nature, the kind of um, trying something new, getting away from um, wherever they were. Um, and, and I find in particular Auckland is a little bit more specific, you know, people come here to kind of, you know, do business or study or whatnot, but Wellington, it, it kind of attracts the random kind of people of the world, like it, it is quite an eclectic mix. I could see that, I liked Wellington. Yeah, I mean, I've got an on and off relationship with it as, um, as many people know, it's sort of a small place, it's like not quite a real city, it's sort of just mm. a little bit smaller than that, and so it's still got a local vibe. Um, but there is definitely what we call the tall poppy syndrome here, where it's kind of like if you've gone and done something overseas, it's kind of, kind of null and void. And ah, I see. You have to start over, square yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've, I've struggled with that, and it's been sort of a, a double life in a way, um, trying to like be a local, but also not. What brought you back to New Zealand? I've heard a few episodes of the show, but not one where you've addressed why you came uh, back. I mean, I had been coming back in the summertime for a while. Um, and yeah, just the last time I was like, okay, stuff happening over in Wuhan doesn't really look that great. Um, mm. I had a cousin actually who was at Wuhan University at that time. And, I, and she was like, oh, you know, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, you, you might want to sure. <laughs> come back. So we just sort of held fire because we were about to head off again. But we just stayed here and um, ended up, yeah, taking the long haul for two years. And it's been, yeah, it's been instructive to say the least. 
but yeah, that's uh, that, that's me. But I, I am keen to um, find out a little bit more about yourself, Colin. Um, oh, anything, anything. You're, you're in South Korea at the moment. I've lived in Seoul for six years now. Wow. Uh, just wow. in November, went over to six years, which it sounds long, but I meet expats here who have been here 20, 30 years, many of whom still can't speak Korean. Do you find there's a lot of foreigners over there who can't speak Korean? Because I, I found a lot, you know, when I when I was there in, I think, 2012, um, there was a lot of lifers, like you say. They'd been there for 14 years, 15 years, and uh, they didn't speak a lick of Korean. And it was it was quite interesting, right? Well, interesting is, is one way of putting it. <laughs> I, uh, I was at a party a few years ago, an English radio party. There is an English language radio world here in Seoul. It's very small, but it exists. And I was guesting on a segment about soul urbanism for a while. I was at this party. One of English radio's biggest stars, a Canadian guy, was chatting with him. And I happened to mention I'd been studying the Korean language for about seven years before I came to Korea. And he actually stopped the party. He turned everyone toward me. He's like, hey, this, this guy, this guy was studying Korean before he came to Korea. And I was thinking, does this shit happen in China? I don't think it does. Uh, you know, the Korean, the, the Korean expat community such as it is, is... is Distinguished, you could say, by the number of people who don't speak Korean. And for my own part, I can't imagine how they get by. I can't imagine. Uh, it's you know, Before I ever visited Korea, you get the impression, you're sort of given to believe that Koreans, as soon as they see a white face, will try English. And that's happened to me maybe 10 times in six years I've been addressed in English. Uh, it's, it's Koreans speak Korean, and uh, if you don't have it, it's, it's a hard road to hoe. But, I mean, as I'm sure you saw, many long-term expats, they find a way. They just go to places where English is spoken or their wife does everything for them. Or, you know, they, they sort of, like a river finds the easiest path down the mountain. They also find the easiest way through Korea without bothering to learn more than taxi and restaurant Korean, if, if that. Uh, but as to why it is, you know, I, I've never lived in Japan. I've been there many times. And uh, I just, I love when I go there. The expectation is in the air. Even as a foreigner, you're going to speak Japanese. Mm. That's, that's my impression anyway. Uh, I've never been to China. I've been to Taiwan and uh, started studying Mandarin before going there for that reason. But I got the sense on the mainland, you're going to be, you're going to feel that pressure. Uh, you'd better be speaking Chinese if you want to stay here any length of time. In Korea, uh, it's sort of, no one's really putting if, if anybody's putting the pressure on you, it's got to be you yourself, right? Mm. I think like from, from my experience in Japan, I didn't necessarily feel that pressure a lot. Um, ah. But I wanted to learn Japanese. I took it upon myself. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of foreigners in Japan um, do want to do it for themselves, their, their own sort of like interest. The interest is there. Yeah, the, the interest there is there because of the, you know, the cultural aspect of, mm -hmm. of, of Japan's history, I guess, fascinates people more possibly than it does in Korea. I'm not sure. Oh, certainly. I think it probably says something about the kind of people that go to Korea. Like, um, I don't know what it's like anymore, of course, and I don't know what, what your experience is. But when I was there, it was just um, it was just English teachers who wanted to party. And that is what we did. Well, you were a teacher yourself, right? I was. I was an English teacher who wanted to party. Exactly. Well, that, that tells you, it shows you that there are two worlds, at least, among expats. There's English teachers and then everyone else. And you, it's hard to cross the line between those worlds, especially, as I understand it, if you're a teacher trying to break out of it, it's not so easy, is it? It is hard. Are you saying that there's there's a lot of, I guess, professional uh, weigukins in Korea, and weigukin being the, the term for foreigner? Yeah. 
derived from the same Chinese characters uh, as uh, the better known Gaikokujin in yeah. Japan as well. Uh, but yeah, outside country person. Uh, yeah, there there are, and uh, you know, I, it's it's been kind of an issue for me because if you are a professional Weigugin, you have the the roads are limited to to ensure your visa status. Something that I've sort of struggled with myself. Uh, if you don't want to teach English or whatever language you speak natively, uh, the other option is if you speak Korean to, to go on TV. And I've I've got offers and I've got around them for the most part. I, I have gone on TV, but. To, to get a long-term visa, I may have to come to terms with the fact that you know, I'll be going on TV sooner rather than later. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to accept that and figuring out how to become not uh, not the sort of performing foreigner, you know, because a lot of foreigners who speak Korean are on TV for that reason and that reason only. Whereas in Japan, I think the standards are, are higher. Uh, you, you, you can speak Japanese, you have to speak Japanese if you want to go on TV in Japan, but you have to do something else as well, right? Uh, and there's a there's a uh, a famous gaijin uh, wh- whom I, I quite admire and take as a model in some ways, uh, Peter Barakan in Japan, who uh, does a show. He does many broadcasting activities, but uh, one show, the Lifestyle Museum on Tokyo FM, that I listen to every week. And you know, he's he's English and he speaks Japanese. He's been there more than forty years, and he just interviews people, uh, Japanese people or Japanese-speaking foreigners, on this show every week. And uh, he brings a different perspective, of course. But I, to my mind, nothing is lacking about his Japanese. He speaks it just as well as uh, as a, a Japanese. But he he never sort of forgets to use the fact that he's English and draw on his sort of Western experience as well. And there's no one quite like that in Korea. Maybe I can fashion a role of that kind, but we'll see. You know, I've got a long way to go before I'm Peter Berrigan. Uh, that's, that's, that's fascinating. I, I guess talking about performance, um, I, I am interested in this idea of like the, the performance of the self, right? And and how, especially when you're living overseas and in, 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 in a place like South Korea or Japan, you, you kind of begin to embody everything about where it is that you're from, and you start to become representative of that. Uh, how, how have you found that and uh, where you are? Well, it's tricky in my case because nobody ever guesses that I'm American. For whatever reason, people are thrown off uh, by that. Uh, when they when they find out, they always say something to the effect of, like, I, I never would have guessed. And I don't know what they're drawing on. Uh, sometimes this will happen. I'll order a coffee, and I'll come back to pick up the coffee. Uh, my, the buzzer they give me goes off. I go to get it, and I, I see one or more baristas sort of clustered there asking, you know, where, where are you from? We were wondering. And something about my, I don't know, something about me, uh, it, it scrambles the signal a bit. They're looking for certain characteristics in, Amer- in an American that I don't deliver in one way or another. I mean, in, in, and have you have you both been, been I know, uh, one of you, have, of course, lived in Korea. Have you both been to Korea and sort of had that dynamic happen where they, they take you as a representative? I was only there for a couple of days in Seoul. And so I, I can't say, I mean, it was quite an interesting experience, but um, I, I can't say I had that much engagement with, with people. So it's, it's hard to say, but I, I'd imagine if, if I spent longer there, it might, might have come out, yes. And were, were you, were you the, the, the uh, Simon, were you the, the Yongguk Shinsa? Here in Korea, <laughs> I was very much um, the 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 British guy. You know, I was the cliche British guy, um, the, the gentleman. That happened in Japan as well. Especially older Japanese men um, were like, "Are you a gentleman? Are you a gentleman?" Yes, very important question. <laughs> they were fascinated by British culture. I, I just yeah, I find it interesting hearing you mention that stuff, Colin, because you know, being back in New Zealand now for two years and, and you know, very much a 
a globalized place you know even though wellington is a, is a small city in a way you know it I, I found it very relaxing to kind of come back and, and be able to just be myself in a way you know there's no a priori um ideas of, of who or what i am and you know talking with my friends you know my colleague uh, is from china and you know we speak chinese sometimes or we, we just use these kind of pidgin languages again which i really love mixing english and chinese and japanese all in one and it's like it, it doesn't matter it, it's just who we are but when i was in japan or when i've traveled overseas you know you, you you take all of this baggage with you and you kind of embody it and there's expectations and ideas that kind of precede you and um i didn't realize at the time but how how much that had affected the way i presented and performed i guess within society do the japanese have a strong mental image of the new zealander you were held to well just anyone who's who's not japanese there's ideas ah of course know? and so um you know and, and looking back on that you know i found that you know despite that uh, you know my, my my kind of opportunity to develop my creative practice um mm. kind, kind of emerged through that but at the same time it can be quite challenging to be faced with this you know these ideas of kind of broad strokes of people and and not looking at the individual I, I could I could see that having to having to play play a role even if you're not on TV. If you are on TV, I imagine they really ask you to camp it up. You know, be from be from wherever you are to the the nth degree, and that would be that would be difficult. That would be unnatural. I yeah, suspect. yeah, and it's kind of almost a projection though of I guess you know maybe their their feelings or their kind of um, you know their kind of subconscious ideas of of, of themselves. You know, and, and I find this always very interesting. This kind of idea of identity in place. Um, and you know the connection between different parts of Asia and, and kind of that kind of cultural uh, cultural mix and, and how it all kind of comes out in different ways and, and how it becomes politicized as well is very interesting. You know, um, what's your experience been with that? Well, politicized in what sense? In, in terms of a particular issue or a, like geopolitics as they manifest in day to day life? Well, I'll give you I'll give you a little example. So my wife is Japanese, um, but we have. Uh, her, I've spent a lot of time with her family and her, you know, her grandmother um, grew up in um, Takada no Baba, which is a, a place in Japan that's very well known for the Zainichi Korean population. Ah. Um, and we have a, you know, you, you can just talk to her and you can you can find this kind of, I don't know, it feels like you're, you can see the connection with, with Korea there. And, you know, she's never said anything about it, but with her grandmother, you know, I, I can see that, that connection. And so to say you know or do, you know do you have uh, you know korean connection in the family somewhere it's it's not really able to be spoken about yet ah, it's, it's very clear to me that it's she's got the body language she's got everything um and it's like there's something there which i find very interesting I and mean, we love it um but when you're in japan it becomes a you know you can't ask that question i, I yeah i do find the the uh the zainichi koreans i've encountered in japan usually they've lost their they've lost their linguistic roots in any case and can barely speak korean uh sometimes they you know i, I was but last i was in osaka i was at a, a tiger's bar a hanshin tiger's bar being run by a, a a guy who volunteered he was ethnically korean and i was saying, oh do you speak any korean and all he knew was uh kimuchi and he said it that way he said it kimuchi uh, with the, the full accent and everything which i enjoyed so we just used japanese uh crappy though my japanese is but here i mean if you look at it the other way there were protests a couple of years ago, known as the No Japan protests in, in Korea. This was pre-corona. Uh, turning against, once again, sort of a flare-up of anti-Japanese sentiment. But that sentiment exists with 
an appreciation for pretty much everything Japanese. Uh, mm -hmm. Even among the oldest generations who experience firsthand what it was to live under Japanese rule, you know, to the extent that I talk to people of that generation, they still express uh, just instinctive appreciation for, you know, they, you can tell they think Japanese things are by definition the best. And uh, oftentimes their speech is littered with Japanese words and they, they don't, uh, often they don't know that they don't, they don't know that they are. Uh, and it's, uh, I don't know how much I don't know how much I should point that out or not, or whether I should acknowledge that when I talk to them. I just I make a mental note, but you never you're never quite sure in Korea how you can how you can discuss Japan. But you know I I take Japanese classes here. I've taken a, a variety of conversation classes. There's always Koreans there. They're always eager to learn Japanese, and they may express sort of they may say we don't like the Japanese government, but uh, the anti-Japanism doesn't run that deep. I suspect though it is highly visible. In, in situations like these No Japan protests, you know, it's easy to encounter anti-Japanese sentiment, but not so easy to encounter somebody who, a Korean, who really avoids Japanese things. Back when I was living in um, Brighton in 2011, so this was before I went to Korea, I was working as an English teacher. This is where my career started. So I was teaching in a private school in Brighton and we had students from all over the world. Um, mostly Europe, but we had quite a lot of Japanese and quite a lot of Koreans in the school. And this is where I sort of met a lot of my first Koreans. And then so, so you know, in, in one class, we would have six Japanese and six Koreans and they got on really well. Like they, they really, they struck up great friendships. And um, it came time for uh, Korean Independence Day, which I believe is August 6th, is that? Right? Is it? There's a couple. There's a few. There's a few different uh, holidays, but there is one in August as well. So the yeah, it was it was it was one of the Korean Independence Days, and that is you know independence from Japan after the war. So on this particular day, all the Koreans in the school were very excited and very happy, and they were drinking, you know, eating loads. And so some of the Japanese were like, ah, um, oh, you know, congratulations for today. By the way, what is what what is today for your culture? And the Koreans said, well, you know, it's our Independence Day. And the Japanese were like, independence from who? And they exactly. just they just didn't know. They just honestly didn't know. I just went in and checked, by the way, so I didn't get it wrong. It's August fifteenth. Now we can we can freely say what date it was. I was afraid of saying the wrong day. That would not have reflected well on me. But that's a telling story. It's a very telling story. Mm. It's, I mean, this is the example that comes up so often is, is Dokto, known as Takashima in Japanese, the island between Korea and Japan, which is used as a sort of political symbol. And there are many Koreans who express great fervor about Dokto. Dokto nun uritang. Dokto is our land. And I have yet to meet a Japanese who's even, who cares, and most of them haven't heard of this issue. I mean, they, it's, there's a certain, it's a one-way rivalry, you might say. Uh, there are Japanese people who resent Korea's popularity in the world, but I, I don't get the sense that the Japanese hate Koreans, or unless they, they're Koreans in their midst and they resent them, if you know what I mean. There's no generalized hatred of the kind that you would expect if you know about Korean anti-Japanese sentiment, if that makes sense. Yeah, wow, that's, that's, it's all very interesting. And again, hearing you talk about it, it sort of takes me back a little bit, because as I said, you know, I, I go to, um, I've got a few friends we met up with, and it is, we, we, we all are from different backgrounds and we all speak different languages, and, and all of this stuff seems to just evaporate away. But I, I do recall when I was living overseas in Japan that a lot of this was so much more um, 
you know, in, in, in your face and invisible and, and, you know, you could feel it. And, you know, now that, that has sort of disappeared in a way as, you know, because New Zealand functionally is such a, a globalised and, and open uh, society that it's kind of, you know, you can do whatever you want and anyone can kind of come along and that's okay. Um, and it, it sort of promotes this kind of mingling and curiosity in a way, uh, if, if you know what I mean. Um, whereas that wasn't the case in Japan or, or other places I've been where it can be very knee-jerk and polarised and black and white. Um, and it can be. And you have those sound trucks as well with the, the ultra-conservatives blaring their messages outside of mm. off the speakers off the back of a truck. You know, you don't miss those, I'm sure. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I do recall those, and um, they do, they are quite loud. Um, but, you know, just, yeah, kind of breaking through that layer, though, because it, for me it is, the political is always, I mean, it's so salient right now, just with everything going on in the world, but I do always think coming back to, you know, the practice and, and my artwork and then kind of, you know, collaborating to create things that, you know, trying to break through those barriers and looking at the connection you know, um, between, um, you know, what, what artists and, and creators are doing in different places, you know, like um, one example is I'm a big fan of, of Park Chan-wook's films. Ah, uh, yes. And looking at the connection and the synergy between that and, say, earlier avant-garde Japanese cinema um, and kind of this kind of give and take between these artists who I'm sure there's a, a high degree of mutual respect between all of these practitioners, yet they... Um, the, the work itself is each iteration, no matter who it comes from, seems more polished than the previous, you know? It's true. I mean, Korean cinema in these past 10 years, there's been some attempts to uh, collaborate with Western actors, Western production companies, and all that, to varying degrees of success. Uh, Pak Chanuk, was, was Stoker one of his? Mm hmm. Yeah. That's right. And it's that was one of the more successful entries in the sort of uh, East-West collaboration. I mean, one of the less successful would be, uh, well, Bong Joon-ho is a good example because he's he's been so lauded for Ki Seng-chung, Parasite, which won the, the U.S. Academy Awards, swept those in uh, last year. But before that, he made Okja, which was the sort of half-and-half half thing. And I, I think I've... I haven't seen worse performances by Western movie stars in recent memory than I did in Okja. Something, you know, it's one of these Korean movies where something goes wrong in the collaboration with the West, and after that, Bong Joon-ho returned to the homeland and uh, sort of mounted an attack on the homeland in a way, but it was much more successful, critically and uh, artistically, I would say. But, uh, you know, there's others. There's interesting filmmakers who do more regional collaborations as well. There's a, a, a Chinese, how to put it, a Korean Chinese, or he was born in China, but he's ethnically Korean. Zhang Lu is his name, and uh, he makes films mostly in Korean, but his last one was in Fukuoka, Japan, called Fukuoka, with mostly Korean characters, but also Japanese ones. His, his is a model I would like to see followed a bit more, even though he's a much more minor filmmaker than, of course, Bong Joon-ho. But there's still potential there, I would say. Yeah, well, I mean, there's I guess there's differences in, in kind of production values and, and approaches to work, right? Like... Um, 
uh, one of my favorite films is the Mishima Life in Four Chapters, which is um, oh yeah, it's Paul Schrader. Yeah, Paul, Paul Schrader. Yeah, and I mean I love the music, and I, I think there were a lot of challenges to say the least for the production of that with the kind of Japanese crew and and just sort of the some of the uh, issues with with Mishima's family. But um, the film itself is is a masterpiece. But that um, is, is an exception. I, I think you know a lot, often it, it is challenging um, to kind of bridge that gap. Um, and I, you do write a little bit about cinema or quite a lot about cinema don't you I do and it, you know you bring to mind something that I was talking about just yesterday in one of my Japanese conversation classes it's you know tis the season Christmas is coming we were talking about Christmas traditions what movies do you watch at Christmas and I brought up a uh, a Japanese Western collaboration, well known by the name of Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, uh, oh, a, yeah. a film you might have seen with uh, David Bowie and Ryuichi Sakamoto wearing a lot of eyeshadow as a, uh, a Mishima type figure. And, you know, you describe that movie to someone who hasn't seen it and it sounds just nuts. You can't make it you can't make it sound like a real movie even. You know, you watch it and it everything fits together as strange as it may sometimes feel. Uh, you know, it's it, it's set in this World War II prison camp. You, again, you have these two music stars, one playing a, a prisoner of war, another the sort of honor-bound uh, honor, honor uh, overseer of the prison. You have these flashbacks where David Bowie is, I believe, supposed to be a, a teenager in New Zealand, but he's like 36, clearly, in the, <laughs> in the flashback. So in so many ways, this movie shouldn't work at all. But... Like many of my favorite movies, it does somehow, in the end. I don't know if you have differing opinions on Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, but that is a true victory of sort of the art over the very unpromising combination of factors going into it. Well, it's, it's magical, right? And I mean, they, they do play it over here um, at this time of year. And um, actually, I think some of it was actually shot in New Zealand, uh, in Auckland. Oh, the flashbacks um, were actually shot there? Yeah, yeah, I've been, because uh, oh, wow. it's the old Auckland railway station, um, and I've been there, and yeah, it's, um, it, it might, actually, I, I think it might even be some of the tropical scenes are also shot there. I'm not if, sure if it was all on location, but Auckland has kind of a tropical look sometimes, yeah. I could believe it. Since we're talking about language, it's worth noting that Tom Conti, who is the Japanese-speaking Westerner in that movie, he couldn't actually speak Japanese. He was saying every single line phonetically. He just memorized all these lines, and he sounds okay given that, but you think, wouldn't it be easier just to learn that level of Japanese at that point yeah. rather than memorizing all like a hundred lines across throughout a movie? But every actor has his own method. What can you say? But I, yes, I do. I do write a lot about film. Uh, I whether see, Korean film was in large part what got me into Korea in the first place. Uh, I stumbled upon this trove of Korean DVDs in my university library and started watching them. And I noticed well, these DVD boxes are all in Korean, so I should probably learn this alphabet, because somehow I knew it was an alphabet, that it wasn't ideographic, uh, the writing system, the Korean writing system, and I knew it was supposed to be easy to learn, the alphabet, if not the language. And so I told myself, well, I'll, I'll learn to read it, I'll read these DVD boxes, and I'll sort of get it out of my system, and 15 years later, here I am, living in Korea, uh, still every day working on, uh, working on the language. So I sort of backed myself into it. I think I, on some level I, I knew what I was doing. Tell us more about that, like language learning. Is that something that came to you naturally? Or? No, I, I didn't. I wasn't into it at all growing up, and I, I don't know uh, if you guys had similar experiences, but in, growing up in the States, you know, you have to do a foreign language in school. Mine was Spanish, which I liked I liked all right at the time, but since then I've had to forget what I learned in school or what I was taught in school about Spanish and relearn again, you know, from, from scratch. But I just, it didn't really put the fire into me to learn foreign languages. And part of me 
had this delusion, labored under this delusion that if I started learning after childhood, I just figured I'm never going to get it. So why bother? So I, I held to that. I held fast to that for a while. But then, you know, in, in the 2000s, uh, I started podcasting and doing an interview show on the radio uh, at that time as well in California. And I, I read a memoir by a professor named John Nathan. Uh, he is a, he is a, he's still around. He's a translator of Japanese literature, translated Mishima, in fact. He was Mishima's first English translator. And he happened to be a professor at uh, the school where I graduated, uh, the school from which I graduated, uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. And he wrote a memoir called Living Carelessly in Tokyo and Elsewhere. So I interviewed him about that because I had always had an interest in a fascination with Japan since childhood, as many many guys our generation do because of video games or, or animation or what have you, comics. And I, reading his book, you know, then I read other memoirs of foreigners in Japan, Westerners in Japan. Donald Keene wrote a couple of them. Uh, Edward Seidensticker, the ambassador. Uh, no, he was, sorry, Edward Seidensticker, the translator, and uh, the ambassador Reischauer, Edwin uh, Reischauer. And, you know, I kept reading these memoirs of Westerners going to Japan in the 50s, 60s, 70s, thinking, you know, is it too late for me? Uh, assuming that it kind of was, but then I realized, well, I also found this, this cache of Korean movies. I seem to be learning this language. Maybe one day I can at least go there for a while, and uh, I certainly have. Uh, but yeah, these were all tied together, film and language, and, and uh, the sort of Westerners who went before me to Asia, they all coalesced into a, a one big uh, sort of entity of motivation, you might say. But as, yeah. I, as I say, I didn't know I was going to live here until almost the year or two before I moved here. So it was a surprise in a way. What happened after you watched those DVDs in your university library, I, I assume? So how, how, how did it go from that to jumping on a plane and, and not leaving Korea? They, they, that, that's separated by about uh, eight years. But I, I, I was watching Korean movies and uh, sort of slowly getting to grips with the very basics of the language. But at that time, there wasn't much in the way of materials. Uh, there was, I, I checked out, you know, old textbooks from the 1980s from the, the university library. But then after a couple of years of struggle with that, then podcasting really took off. And uh, there were a few Korean podcasts I could listen to. Uh, YouTube videos came around. And so this sort of internet uh, pedagogy started happening. So I had more material to work with. But even then, even after years, I would listen to a Korean podcast, like a podcast all in Korean. And I would catch one out of every 20, 30 words. And I don't know why I thought I was ever going to bridge that gap. Uh, but something, I had some belief, I guess, if I just keep listening, because I had no real prior experience mastering a foreign language, much less an East Asian one. But I just figured, you know, I don't know anybody else learning Korean. So at least it's my thing. Uh, mm. And it felt so individual that I, I sort of kept it as a as a private project. In, in, in that book that uh, I mentioned, the memoir, John Nathan's Living Carelessly in Tokyo and Elsewhere, he was studying Japanese in the 60s at Harvard, and he said he described it as his pet monkey. It was something he just kept for himself, and he pulled it out at parties or wherever so he could uh, impress people. I wasn't quite like that, but I understand the appeal of the pet monkey. And, you know, I lived, in, uh, I lived at that time in Santa Barbara, California, where there were no Korean classes around to take. So I took a Japanese class just because I figured I could meet Koreans there to practice with. And so I, I did, in fact, and, but I, I kept up with Japanese. 
and eventually moved to Los Angeles, where there is a, a, a the biggest Korea town in the U.S. I lived there for a few years, and you know, at a certain point, I could sense which way things were going, and uh, moved from Koreatown to the biggest Koreatown in the world, Seoul, and and here I am. You know, it sounds natural, it sounds logical when I explain it this way, but uh, you know, at the time, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure at all uh, that I would be actually living here, uh, nor that I could make a genuine go of it doing so. Mm. And I know it's a long time ago, so I don't expect you to remember exactly, but can you remember that first time that you stepped off the plane in Seoul? Do you remember, because I, I sort of do, it, it was sort of like, it wasn't so long ago that I can remember that feeling. And it was the first time that I had really left the UK. Um, ah, it's the I first see. time that I'd moved abroad and I remember I arrived at night and mm. it was very magical. The smell was different. The, mm. the, the colors were different. The light was to everything. I remember I was just like overloaded with sensory excitement, I guess. I, I hear you. And, uh, you know, when I, uh, before I mention what it was like to get to Seoul, I should mention, I went to Japan first briefly to record for a few weeks to record podcasts and I'd never been to Asia. I went to Osaka and getting there was one thing. Then I woke up the next morning, went out to the street from my hostel and I thought, this place looks exactly like Japan. Uh, of course it was Japan, but it looks like Japan looks exactly like Japan. And I think you know what I mean when I say that, but Korea, the flight got in at, you know, four in the morning, five in the morning. So uh, you were already in a state of, of bewilderment or disorientation. And I was staying in Gangnam and got in, got down to the, the Airbnb, uh, went out again to get some coffee because I was aware of how many coffee shops there were in Seoul. I'd been told by Korean friends. And I skipped the first three coffee shops I found because they were all located inside plastic surgery clinics. And I was scared to go into them. Uh, they were they were there, they were serving coffee. And first of all, this is so Korean, coffee being served inside a plastic surgery clinic. And even then I knew that was, uh, this is this image is going to stick with me, but I had to skip the first few because I just didn't want to actually, I didn't want to make the first place I went in Korea a plastic surgery clinic in Gangnam. Uh, but that's what it was like. And uh, you know, there was no culture shock because I'd been living in Koreatown. And so I was free to concentrate on other aspects, you know, what, what Seoul was like as a city. Uh, and I could speak Korean enough to get around. So I had a few, a few of the standard burdens were lifted. But in a way, right, you kind of enjoy total incomprehension when you yeah. go to a place. If you, if you, I, I sometimes want, I think, what would Korea be like? I wish I knew what Korea would be like fresh, knowing nothing, just never even, never knowing a Korean, never knowing any Korean language. Just what would it feel like? And I, I don't know, I can't imagine. I really can't simulate it. Unfortunately, mm. yeah, it is a shame. I wonder if some of those foreigners in Korea um, don't learn Korean, so they they retain a little bit of that sort of like unknowing, <laughs> that magic. It's it's possible. I've heard foreigners say I deliberately don't want to learn Korean, but I can't tell if that's an excuse for not learning Korean, I think it's or if excuse. they genuinely feel that way. <laughs> a little of column A, a little of column B, possibly. Spe speaking of speaking of cities, how would you characterize Seoul as a city? Like, can you tell me more about it? What, what's the heart of it? What's the I guess uh, in, in the situation is in, international sort of frame of reference and something we talk about a lot here, kind of wandering through the city. What, what does what does Seoul feel like to you? 
I suppose I should be able to address this because most of the writing I do is about cities. So I'll, I will uh, gather my resources <laughs> and say Seoul is not exceptional in Korea. It is exemplary. That's how Koreans see it. Uh, in the U.S., New York, for example, is not seen as exemplary of American culture, but exceptional. New York is an aberration, albeit a very important aberration. That's how many Americans think. Uh, in the UK, I know that London is, is, seems to be regarded as a city-state unto itself at this point. Uh, and, you know, John Cleese famously got in trouble for saying it doesn't feel English in London anymore. Whether that's true or not, I've been there only once. I couldn't tell you what it feels like uh, in any cogent sense. That's London may be another of the of the great exceptional cities in its country. Whereas Seoul, to a lot of Koreans, Seoul just is Korea. Uh, that's where half, half the population of the whole country is in the Seoul metropolitan area, 25 million of the 50 million. And uh, there's a perception that if you want to make anything of yourself, you've got to get to Seoul, because you're not going to do it uh, in any other part of the country, even any of the other major cities. So this is the most capital-centric country I've ever been to. Uh, I mean, it's more capital-centric than, than England, I would say, more so than France, even. Uh, and that that makes Seoul a certain kind of urban experience, you could say. It, it's, it's representative of many things about the country. Uh, one of them is this. When people visit, when foreigners visit Korea, I often tell them to bear two questions in mind and periodically ask them, themselves these questions as they're exploring. Number one is... To what extent is Korea a 5,000-year-old society? And to what extent is it a sort of 70-year-old society trying to connect itself to its distant past? Another question I ask is, to what extent is Korea an Asian country, an Asian society? And to what extent is it a society in Asia trying to connect, its, connect itself directly to the West? Uh, all of these things are true. All four are true in different measures at different times. But Seoul, I think, shows you, it shows you all of it. It shows you... Uh, what modern Korea is, it, it can be seen within Seoul. Uh, I, tell me if you think I'm making too much of that. Uh, you've both been to Seoul. But what, what stands out, I mean, when you compare it to, say, Tokyo, a city you both know, what really feels different when you would come to Seoul? I mean, what, what was like, oh, this isn't Japan? Was there, was there any, anything in particular you remember? I came to um, Japan after Korea, so I didn't. Uh -huh. I didn't go other back. Way I didn't visit. Yeah, I went the other way around. Um, but for me, the biggest difference between um, Tokyo and Seoul is the the general public. I, I feel like the general public in Tokyo are very mindful and caring. And um, as long as you're not on the Shibuya Scramble, for example, they're you know very polite and sort of get out of your way but my experience in south korea um was a very uh, aggressive general public and i would often get uh, pushed and shoved um by by ajumas or ajoshis <laughs> you know these these oh, older guess. korean generations um and i remember it wasn't just a it wasn't just a couple of times thing it was very often i would just get like shoved out of the way by some um she looked you know it looked like a, a lovely old lady walking down the road but she was on a mission and i was in the way <laughs> of her mission um oh, yes that happened often and that never ever happened to me in japan even though i spent longer time there now, if we talk about, I don't know, the experience with the actual city itself, I felt like 
Tokyo was um, a little bit cleaner and quieter than Seoul. Um, I don't ever remember going into a back alley in Seoul and finding silence. Whereas in Tokyo, you could do that. You could do that very easily. Even if you were in Shibuya, you could go a couple of rows back from the main street and you would find silence. And it would be so quiet. You're right. I, I've had that. I've had that experience in in Tokyo. But go ahead, yeah, Cody. What 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 was your? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, I am conscious. You know, like there are two different places. But you know, my my brief experience in Seoul, um, it was one of of kind of awe in a way. Um, mm. I've got a good friend who, well, you know, the you know the 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 Korean story is a very interesting one. I've got a friend, Tim Franco, who shot a book uh, exploring um, actually North Korean uh, defectors. And, and sort of telling their story and I always remember lo- looking at that imagery and some of the work that he's done around that and, and realizing that there, there is a, a much more salient and, and kind of stark memory there of, of, of sort of the Korean situation and that became very clear to me when I was in the subway which you know there's very cavernous kind of large underground structures which I understand actually bomb shelters in, in, in a sense um, very large some of them are quite deep underground it's true yeah, and and you know, that, that, you know, huge places. Which um, and, and I have an image there in my mind when I got off the subway, you know, this, this huge kind of fallout shelter-like subways, and then the, an old, an old lady hobbled over on it like a small tarpaulin trying to sell vegetables. But it wasn't a market, you know. She was literally just in a the corner there with her vegetables, you know, oh, cabbages yes. and things, trying to sell that. And then I, I remember seeing that, and everyone just sort of walking past and thinking, you know, this. There's a story here that I would love to explore and to understand more about the history of this place because it is so much, uh, you know, in, you know, somewhere like Taiwan, there's kind of like these little alleyways and things. And, and I didn't mm-hmm. spend enough time there to really get to explore it. But I would love to know more about those places and kind of the relationship they had with the history of the city and how the city has grown out from perhaps a, a central point or, or sort of how it formed. Um, I would be interested to know more about that. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I felt definitely there was a very chilling effect, um, a, a, a sort of in the atmosphere. You know, I wasn't able to relax in the same way that I would in other places where you could just sort of fall into it. Like I always felt I had to be kind of on my guard, and and it was you know sort of as Simon mentioned, yeah, there was a little bit of this kind of aggression in the air, um, mm. which was again coming coming straight from Tokyo. It was quite a different experience. But I would like to know maybe what what goes into that. I too had the uh, had a similar old lady who would sit on the corner and sell vegetables near the first building I lived in here in Seoul. Even in freezing winter weather, uh, worse than it is right now, she would be out there surrounded by her bags of vegetables. And you still see this. I mean, in Gangnam Station, there's a, a, an even older lady I see there when I pass through. Uh, and in, the, in those surroundings, you know, you have these giant video screens showing K-pop videos, and there's this 85-year-old woman selling uh, sprouts uh, on the ground. It's it's not that is not a vista you see in Tokyo, in, at least in my experience. Uh, but the yeah, there, there's one thing to mention here is yes, the Korea, South Korea, is well known for having developed very quickly since the 1960s, uh, really since the end of the Korean War, but especially so after the 60s, industrializing fast, developing fast, uh, modernizing, if you like, fast, or even westernizing in some uh, respects, fast. And the the traces of the speed of that process are are everywhere. And I think for a lot of Koreans, they they prefer to ignore 
the traces of the developing world that are still visible around. So I think if you ask Koreans about these things, about the, uh, the old lady selling vegetables, or if you ask them about the, even the sort of apocalyptic preachers with their giant signs and megaphones, you ask them, what do you think of, what do you think of those people? They might say, oh, it's a shame, or I don't like them, but I don't think they see them at all. And this is a point often made by uh, long-term expats here, is you just, you get the sense a lot of Koreans just are tuning out things that maybe bother you or stick out to you. Uh, whereas many Koreans born and raised in Seoul, they just don't see them anymore. Uh, but this developmental speed is really, the speed of the development of Seoul and of Korea as a whole is, is one characteristic, I think, that sets, that sets uh, here apart from, say, Tokyo. Tokyo, of course, had to rebuild itself but I don't think it happened quite as quickly, and in some senses not quite as hastily. You know, Japan's known for taking its time on things. Uh, Korea is not known. I mean, it's known for the opposite, the sort of pali-pali culture. Uh, yeah. They often talk about hurry-hurry. And, uh, you know, for good and for ill, that still exists. And, uh, you know, when buildings, buildings come up as quick as they go down, and I just, I was away for two months um, in September and October when I got back, Every day I'd, I saw one or two stores that were just gone or had changed to something else or buildings knocked down, buildings uh, built while I was away. It really, it's still, it's still very rapidly, at least by American standards, very rapidly changing here. And that's mm. maybe the, the signal quality to a lot of people who live here. English stands as well we're very slow at you know building and <laughs> so um but one thing that I did find a nice correlation between the Japanese and the Koreans was that um both both of them were very connected to nature so you know even the people who were living in Tokyo or even the the people living in Seoul they were because nature was so physically close to them, they were often going out climbing and they were going to the mountains and the forests around the, you know, around these big metropolises. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what the English relationship is is there or the American relationship, for example. I know in New Zealand, you're, you're basically all nature. The whole country is nature. Yeah, I mean, it's problematic. Like, I think, um New Zealand is definitely uh, the connection with nature is, is difficult. Like uh, we live amongst it, but it's definitely a taming of nature. Mm. You know, and that kind of Princess Mononoke kind of style relationship, that symbiotic kind of animalistic relationship with uh, animalism kind of thing. It, it doesn't. It's not really the same here. You know, it's very much a, a command and a control of nature. Um, uh, but I, I do know what you, what you mean, though. Is sort of uh, a, re a reverence for it, which I, I do not think is the case uh, in New Zealand. As much as uh, the, 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 we would like to say that, I, I think generally speaking, as an agrarian country, it, it's not it's not like that. You know, we just sort of um, it's an extraction based economy at the end of the day, um, and the extraction comes from the land. You know, the the mention of nature reminds me. I should have mentioned one more obvious quality of soil, which is the mountains. Uh, Anybody who goes to Seoul seems to notice those first. Uh, first, it's mm -hmm. the apartment complexes, the clusters of 20, 30-story towers. But then it's the mountains. And I was once asked by the Korea Times to write a, uh, to contribute to a series of pieces by expats talking about what they like about Seoul. 
and the editor who commissioned me said this first, whatever you do, don't write about the mountains, because every expat writes about the mountains, every foreigner writes about the mountains. And to be honest, it hadn't occurred to me, because I, I don't go up there much, but you really, you can go hiking uh, by just getting on a train, getting on a subway, and it'll stop at the foot almost of the mountain. You can climb up it, and if you're an old Korean person, you have a backpack full of makgeolli, or other alcohol, you're going to drink it up there. But, uh, you know, a lot of foreigners here will say, you ask them, what do you like about Seoul? And they'll say, it's easy to get out of Seoul. You can go you can go away to the countryside or you can go up a mountain, which is kind of a backhanded compliment, but it reminds me of what I heard about Los Angeles, the last city I lived in in the US, where people would say, what do, what do I like? Well, I can, go, I can go away, I can go away from Los Angeles and I can hike up the, I can go on the Santa Monica Mountains or what have you, which I never did even once. Uh, but to my mind, neither of these cities I, do I have any desire I don't have any desire, desire to get away from them. Uh, I, I, I enjoy the cities themselves. And the same is true for, you know, I like Osaka in Japan very much. And uh, I hope to one day do, uh, do more writing about Osaka. And, uh, you know, it's a city people complain about in the way that they complain about Seoul or Los Angeles. But I got to tell you, I, when I'm there, I have no, no desire to leave whatsoever. Can I just ask you about your relationship with uh, Los Angeles? Do you, like over the last six years, have you been able to go back much? Um, you know, not counting the last two years, of course. But what has your relationship changed to Los Angeles at all? I still keep. I still write about it. I still when I still write about Los Angeles books that come out. I'm still working on a book myself about Los Angeles, and uh, it's been a while though. I, I was last there in 2018. And by, as again, I bring up U.S. standards, by U.S. standards, it's a fast-changing city, but not by Korean standards. So it's, it's always recognizable when I go there. But the big development now is, is sort of expanding the transit system, which uh, changes the texture of the city quite a bit uh, whenever I do go. And, you know, what, this book I'm doing about Los Angeles, I've, I've got many suggestions from much bigger writers than I have saying, oh, you should focus on how you didn't have a car there, how you got around without a car. And I'm saying, well, first, that wasn't really a problem. And second, that's not going to be notable. Uh, it's kind of not notable now, but won't be noted. It's going to date a book very quickly if it's about, you know, being carless, when it wasn't even, to me, a notable quality of my experience there. Uh, but I... Los Angeles is one of the cities that intrigues me most in the whole world. Uh, might as well admit it. And... You know, it's up there with Seoul or Osaka or Mexico City is another one. And uh, you know, a friend once asked, why do you like all these enormous uh, cities that are difficult to navigate? And hard to say, maybe the challenge, you know, mastering a city is itself an appealing prospect, though impossible, I realize, you know, the idea that you can get closer and closer to mastery of a city asymptotically without ever reaching it, uh, I, I like. But, you know, it got me thinking, are there... Are there any small cities I like a lot? I, I'm not sure. There probably are. I just haven't gone to them enough. But uh, have you? Have either of you been out to Los Angeles uh, in your travels? No, I, I, I've got a lot of friends out that way, but um, it was on the list. Um, we, was, we were talking a while back about doing a road trip at some point, though, weren't we, Simon? Getting oh, out nice. over there and um, checking it all out because uh, yeah, I mean, so much of, of our uh, kind of culture comes from that uh, from that city and, and sort of the. Uh, the visual zeitgeist of you know of everything hollywood and and, and all sorts so yeah I'd, I'd definitely be keen to check it out at some point but um i do a little bit and this i don't want this to sound like a cop-out but i i do i jump on uh, youtube quite a lot and and i watch there's these videos of like dash cam just driving around la and i find it super fascinating just looking at um you know just the disparity you know the different 
you know, you go to certain parts of LA and those super rich, you know, wealthy places, and then there's other areas which are, you know, the you know, the, the complete opposite, and and just the, the, mm. there's no no gradation. It's like a couple of blocks over, and then it changes. I've, I've found that very interesting. It's true. It's you're suddenly in a whole other. It, it feels like you're in another country, and something you just you you, try, you cross some invisible line, and it's like where where am I again? That's that's one aspect of the appeal to me, I suppose. Yeah, I, I do want to jump back to uh, Korea though for a little bit because I, I am conscious that you know we're, we're talking about this, and for me, this, I find this quite interesting because we're talking about this as like Koreans and Japanese and stuff. And as I said, you know, for me, that that kind of I, I kind of used to have that hat on when I was living overseas, but now I come back to New Zealand, like I, I find that it's almost like it, it doesn't matter. It's like I'm, I'm thinking about the city as as the architecture and the kind of the, the moments and the connections between places and it's to, to paint it with the broad stroke of like well this is a korean thing this is a japanese thing it seems almost to to gloss over it you know and i remember quite clearly before all of this uh, uh the lockdowns and, and pandemic stuff i remember thinking you know one project i'd really love to undertake uh, would be would be to visit the posco uh, steelworks uh oh, in, yes. in south south uh, i think it's near busan or down south at least um yeah, uh, Ulsan, I think. Yeah, it's it's the I think one of the largest steel manufacturing regions in the world, uh, and they've got like boat manufacturing and a whole lot of stuff out there, like huge industrial um, areas, you know, and kind of in a it seems like quite a a, 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 a a sort of inhospitable part of the country in terms of hills and mountains and things as well. And I always think, just looking at the images of that, I thought you know this would be a really interesting project because that in particular POSCO as this steel company was really one of the drivers of the Korean economic miracle, right? Where they had this steel, some of the best steel in the world being built there um, mm, at the expense of everything else. You know, this was one of the drivers uh, at the time and the government really put a lot of work into making that what it needed to be. And yet it, it seems so banal, you know, it's just a factory, but it's so much there, you know? I should correct myself. I think maybe Pohang is where most of that most of the steelworks are. Maybe Ulsan oh, you're right. as well. Yeah, They're near each other. Is the headquarters, um, but they might have the actual factories. Might be somewhere else. Um, that's that's on, possible. I haven't been down there. Yeah, they're on they're on the water. So they've got the sort of like um, you know the, the 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 iron ore comes in at one end, you know, on the boats, and then it kind of gets made and sent out on the other side. And but just just the imagery of that. Um, and the furnaces and all of that. And I mean, I'm sure it would be impossible to get access to, but just as a, as a dream and a vision of, of shooting something like that as a series to, to kind of drive into it. Because if, if Seoul, as you say, is this kind of exemplary city, what about the rest of it? You know, what about the, the manufacturing and the kind of the rough blue tarpaulins and, 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 and farmhouses and, and factories in the middle of nowhere that are everywhere else? Because they're not necessarily- All of which I like when I travel Korea. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I do find that very interesting, um, and then just kind of the the connection between it, because you know I remember when I was flying over there, you know you sort of went over a bit of the countryside, and as you say, you could see these high rise apartment buildings as you come into land, um, and uh, you know they're very similar, and in a way remind me a little bit of, of the Danji from Japan. In fact, what what, would, what are they called in Korean? Uh, Danji. Rather, this is a this is a cognate. As the, there are many cognates between Japanese and Korean, but apart yeah. danji, yeah, and yeah. you know there was a there. Those are hated by by Westerners very often. And uh, there was a guy. There's a guy, Michael Booth, an English writer living in Denmark, who did a book called Three Tigers, One Mountain. Recently, traveling in Korea, China, Taiwan, Japan, trying to get a sense of why don't these countries get along. But he has a big Korean section. 
and he addresses his own distaste for the apat danji of Korea. And he's thinking, why, why do these bother me so much? Especially, why do the numbers on the side bother me so much? Because if you've seen these buildings, they're, they're giant, you know, thir- not giant, 30, 20, 30 story concrete towers all together in a cluster, each labeled with a three digit number usually. And he says, I think it's, the, I think it's because something so big should, inst- I feel instinctively, something so big should be identifiable by its size alone. The fact that it needs a number it means something is wrong. Something is out of order there. Uh, and I understood that. I don't hate those complexes, but I can't say that I like them. Uh, but I do see what he means, right? It's something, something went wrong. Like there's a conceptual mismatch when you look at them. It's like something here shouldn't be like this. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a bigger question there, and I've always been fascinated by this, and, you know, as you might know, you know, I, I did the book, uh, a photo book on Danshi and in Japan, and there's been something that's always fascinated me about modern modern architecture and concrete in particular as this kind of uh, vernacular material for the modern world and because uh, you, you see these same, very same buildings not only in, in Korea but in, in other parts of the world at a certain point in their development developmental history and they are, all seem to follow the same blueprint and so there was this kind of idea um, that kind of caught on this contagion idea of, of a certain form of housing, uh, which we even have in New Zealand, uh, albeit a little bit earlier. Um, the one the examples we have here from the 40s and 50s, but um, you know, it, everywhere in the world has in uh, in their own way this sort of form, or a lot of places in the world have this form of of concrete architecture, um, public housing, in a lot of cases, or private buildings, uh, and and it seems to have caught on. What, what what are your thoughts on that? In a way. I'm willing to almost hazard that in every city, they date, these buildings date from when people were rushing to the city, when you had the greatest influx of population. And in Korea, that was the 1960s. In Seoul, you saw everybody coming to Seoul from the countryside, from the, there's this word in Korean, jibang, it just means region, but effectively it means not Seoul. And from the jibang, when everybody was coming, they needed to be housed some way. And these concrete buildings could be put up quickly. And in in New Zealand, I don't know, was was the 40s and 50s a big time of, of, of uh, migration from the countryside in the cities? I think, yeah, the, um, interestingly, the examples, and New Zealand had a, 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 two, a two-fold approach. So the state house, which was the freestanding, um, uh, you know, home, you know, sort of mm. quarter acre, and each with a, 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 a number of designs, so they didn't all look exactly the same, was one angle, and that was, the you know, predominantly in the 40s. And then there were, in Wellington in particular, there were a number of these high-rise projects because Wellington has a lack of land area. Uh, and they were developed uh, again in the 40s, sort of post-war, as the kind of things started coming back, and, and again people moved to the city, flocked to the city. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are physical marks of the flocking to the city era, I suppose yeah. you could say. And Tokyo as well, although from what I understand, Tokyo is complicated by the uh, the Shinkansen, which effectively made Tokyo larger it, it it's uh, it made many other cities suburbs of tokyo effectively if i have that right so you don't have quite the height of housing you do in seoul but you do have a, a greater spread if uh, if that if that gets it yeah well there's a lot more land area i think in the kanto region where tokyo is and um I think the the Danchi, which really emerged in these kind of sleeper towns, right? So uh, the Shinkansen, uh, which debuted really with the Olympics in 1964, mm. that that was sort of connecting the the other cities, the other regions of Japan. But 
definitely the commuter network, which meant that you could take these, you know, these these, these kind of commuter trains out to these sleeper towns and come back in for work, um, which kind of grew the boundaries of the city over time. And you see that everywhere, right? That kind of classic urban sprawl, um, but in this case, driven not by the automobile but by um, by the train network. You you do see that, and you know, now I think of I think of the small towns I've been to in Korea, and even these places with a population of sort of 10,000, you have the little downtown, the low-rise downtown strip, and then in the background, there's always 20, 30-story towers clustered together. Even in the countryside where there is space, you have these danji. Uh, they always sprout up in a way that looks, I, I assume, pretty comical to a visitor, although I've got used to them, and I expect to see them. And if I don't, now it's notable, right? If I don't see them. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's an interesting relationship between density um, and, and kind of uh, housing, you know, like with, uh, with New Zealand, the, the, the challenge has been, uh, as we, as you might be aware, we do have a, a major housing crisis at the moment. Uh, and, and the classic New Zealand desire for this sort of freestanding home, the quarter acre, even in places like Wellington, you know, these, um, these massive old colonial mansions that have, uh, you know, six bedrooms uh, are sitting there and, you know, you could fit uh, on a couple of those blocks you could fit a huge apartment block but it's not actually possible with the zoning laws and uh, some of the restrictions so there's this kind of debate right now around the future of new zealand housing uh, whereas that debate didn't you know it was in the old days with uh, with seoul and, and and tokyo it seems like architecturally there was a lot more free form stuff happening some of the stuff they got away with was just so new and 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 kind of the boundaries of what, of what was possible uh, were, were so new at that time that they were able to do stuff like building highways over the top of rivers and building these huge right. projects, um, which you, you, you must have seen similar stuff in, uh, in, in Seoul and Korea. But today, there's just been this kind of ossification of, of, uh, of law and uh, kind of building consents and all of that so that everything has grinded to a halt. And even maybe LA would be the same. Oh, very much so. I mean, when I scroll through Twitter, uh, many of the people that I see on my uh, feed are Los Angeles urbanists or Americans in other cities complaining about how zoning stops the building of housing. Los Angeles is pronounced in that way. Uh, I'm sure England has many similar problems uh, about housing, but uh, some of it's cultural. I, I assume, as you say, the, the desire for the uh, the quarter well, acre or, or what have you. Well, yeah, I mean, one, one of the other places I'd love to visit um, would be, uh, you know, the likes of Glasgow or, or Manchester in, in the UK. I, I would love to come to the UK um, as soon as I can uh, and, and, and whatnot. But, you know, there was this massive move again after the war to rebuild. And you had these, these new towns go up. Um, and so some of the classic um, architecture that I'd love to go and, and, and visit, even, even, you know, the Barbican and, and places like that, um, this kind of concrete monolith uh, that were built as kind of the new vision, you know, English socialism, um, you know, post-war. And that has sort of fallen off. These places have kind of fallen out of favor, um, but they're still, they still stand again. Concrete lasts, right? As a, they as a do, symbol. they do. You yeah. know, I, I'm sure you know the writing of Owen Hatherley, uh, an interview, uh, someone I interviewed, uh, the architectural writer Owen Hatherley, who, whom I interviewed when I, when I was in London. But he's he loves all this stuff too, and so he's given me his his books have given me a sort of a desire to see uh, how to put it. Uh, the, not just smaller towns, but the sort of small cities of England, the sort of the sort of Sheffields, for example, or the uh, the. Uh, Southamptons, where you, you get these relics of the era you're talking about, where there was just so much building done to accommodate a future, uh, the future 
a future society that didn't really materialize, shall we say. That, that would be yeah. what, how he, I think, would put it, how Owen Hatherley would put it. Yeah. What, what, what are your thoughts on that Is in terms of sort of that retro futurism, you know? Well, I'm very drawn to it, but I think, you know, we're all of the same generation. Uh, I think we're all a similar age. I'm, I, I'm in my, I'm 37. Uh, Owen Hatherley is a bit older, but there's, I think we look back for whatever reason, whatever our nationality, at least in the West, kind of fondly on that era where uh, building reflected ideas about what society would be rather than, uh, I mean, now the building in the US, it's sort of everything's being clearly built as an investment vehicle. It's not, there's no, <laughs> there's no ideas behind it. It's just sort of, can we get it built? Is it going to sell? Uh, and that's it. And that may be inevitable, but uh, you know, it, it does make you long for, uh, you, you long to see some notion of the future embodied in concrete or some other material, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that, that is fascinating. You mentioned before that this sort of concrete high-rise culture was really built as people flocked to the city. But what do you think the future holds as we move to a world of work from home? And I think, Simon, you're working from home at the moment, aren't you? I am. I've just been asked to, yeah, to isolate. Uh, once again, back to isolation. Uh, I wonder, because we have, a, we have a, a difference here in the way our respective countries have responded to the to the pandemic and in Korea life hasn't been that disrupted uh, there have there have been no lockdowns per se in Korea Seoul has had a bit uh, a bit more strictures applied to it the capital region has just because that's where the people are as I say but I don't get the sense of much work from home being done here in Korea uh, you know the, the the most life ever got disrupted for me as a freelancer was when uh, last year when coffee shops were takeout only for a month or two and that was inconvenient i had to find the coffee shops that weren't cooperating or that were technically restaurants and and do some writing there but i i do get the sense in the u.s or in much of the west i i just imagine everybody being at home all the time now i could be wrong but i haven't uh I haven't got a sense of how people work there in 2021. You, you two would know better than I would. No, it really is like that, you know, in, in the West, especially there, there is a big movement to staying at home. And yes, one, one of the reasons for that is working from home, but also I think a lot of people are just drained from the, the, the pandemic and a lot of people and sort of what everyone's talking about at the moment is just being burnt out and they don't want to go out as much as they used to anymore and there is a big push for sort of like you know curling up on the sofa with a with a blanket in a in a movie or something yeah it's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that colin because I, I do remember when i was living in japan everything that happened overseas seemed like it was so far away and it didn't matter to us here in japan right but now that i'm back in new zealand i'm, I'm the issues here are so salient um and and in a way new zealand culture was never really prepared for such a serious matter. If, uh, I don't quite know how to explain it, but New Zealand has always been a very easygoing place as you might have experienced when you came here. And yet we got sort of slapped with these very restrictive lockdowns. Uh, in fact, they were illegal uh, in, in the first instance. They had to retroactively change the law to, to, to justify oh and, and legalize it. But we basically got locked up. Um, and most recently, uh, the largest city, Auckland, got locked up for 100 days. Uh, you know, literally people, police roaming the streets looking for people um, outside and, and things like that. So it's been a very shocking uh, two years um, and it's very much changed the fabric of society and in a way the social contract. Uh, and so work from home has become uh, very accessible for people who are of that kind of laptop class. But 
yeah, the essential workers are still going out, but a lot of people, yeah, are working at home. It, it has changed, uh, I think, the relationship with the city. A lot of people trying to get away mm. from from the cities, um, moving to the so, you know, there's smaller t- towns and cities in New Zealand that people have tried to escape to, um, so that they don't have to go through that. But it's all it's done is push the housing price up uh, everywhere. So we've got a million dollars as the average price now in New Zealand for a home, um, which is quite quite a lot of money. Given the laid-back nature of New Zealanders, then I mean, what what, what forces were what forces were uh, were driving these harsh lockdowns? Well, I, th- I think it was a. It, I mean, it's unfortunately it's a very materialistic society, and in, in, in a funny way, and, and potentially quite quite a different way to uh, to, to Japan and, and other places where uh, that materialism is, is bound up in this practicality of, of, of ownership of a home or, or that sort of thing, and there was this kind of attack. On the on the on, on belonging and, and a lot of fear, a lot of um, unfortunately a lot of fear mongering uh, in, in the New Zealand media, which led to people really, uh, you know, being scared, scared beyond belief, and feeling like you know, we we have to kind of like go go back home, and, and this kind of nesting instinct emerged, uh-huh. um, if, if you know what I mean. So. I still see it today, you know, like that kind of jovial, classic Kiwi engagement has sort of, it's still there, but it's not quite the way it was two years ago. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe it will come back, but um, there's definitely a lot of fear floating around. And I think that the media has a lot to answer for that. But um, yeah, it's, it's been challenging. By contrast, I was just in the States a couple months ago. One of the places I was in was Arizona in the Southwest, in the state of Arizona. And it's it's 2019 there. There's No one even acknowledges uh, <laughs> that there has been a pandemic. There's no masks, nothing. Which, it feels different than being in Korea, where even when I'm at, I was at the gym just now, and you know, it's you, you keep your mask on while working out. Uh, which, I, I never, I'm never going to get used to that. And I was happy not to wear one when I was in Arizona. But, you know, California was was stricter. Not like Korea, but even Korea, you know, there's no cops on the street telling you to wear a mask. It's just that everybody's doing it. I suspect because they, it's not so much altruistic as they're afraid of getting in trouble. So everyone puts it on and, you know, okay, we'll, we'll keep it on. Yeah, one of the challenges, I think New Zealand has never really had to deal with, again, this sort of thing. You know, every war and every major issue has always been so far away. Ah, um, yes. And so this kind of idea of something local, and, and it, in a way it did start, uh, probably yeah, pretty much t- two years ago, because uh, there was a number of issues. We had uh, a major, um, unfortunately, a major massacre happened in Christchurch, mm. um, uh, gun violence uh, and whatnot. And so that that sort of thing was unheard of up until now, and that that took place. And then you know just after that there was the, there's the pandemic and all of this stuff. So it really feels like we've been laid. It's been laid on thick uh, in the last couple of years, um, and New Zealand society just wasn't ready to deal with it. Um, Many relationships to authority have been illuminated. You know, attitudes we didn't know people held have come out. Yeah. Um, so, in, in terms of like just the way that relates to the city, you know, I think there are questions now about well, what is the future of of living in, in New Zealand? Uh, you know, Wellington and Auckland, as the two major cities, uh, are both extremely unaffordable. Um, there are um, there are other places to go to, but the economic incentive of working there is is like is, is questionable. Um, and the, the reality is that New Zealand's economy is driven by agriculture. And so what does that mean um, when people don't want to live where, where they're growing things? You know, it, it reminds me of this this thing you always used to hear, this prediction you used to hear in the 90s from Wired magazine types that one day the internet is going to get so good, you'll be able to live in the cabin in the woods 
and do your, your job you're doing now. And it was always premised, the, the underlying premise is that you wanted to live in a cabin in the woods, you were just being stopped by insufficiently advanced technology. And that always stuck out to me as I didn't, I don't know if I, I'm not like longing to live in a cabin in the woods. It's not my default state of where I want to be, but that was always, I'm sure you guys both heard these ideas being thrown around, like finally I'll get to move out into the middle of nowhere. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not the Unabomber, right? I don't, I don't really, I don't feel the need to go into the forest. Well, you, you mentioned, yeah, in, in your Twitter, you mentioned, you know, you're a broadcaster and essayist on cities and culture. And for me, I would, I would question whether you can really have one without the other. Um, Fair enough. You know, uh, is a city is not the machine of culture and the driver of innovation. Yeah, you would you you do wonder what kind of culture is being produced in the sort of forest. <laughs> not not so much. Uh, although, you know, it's uh, there is a, a sort of I don't know. There is a, a rural sensibility in some culture, but I suspect that culture is also itself a product of the city. Is the longing for the, this the the quintessentially urban longing for something other than the city, right? I mean, America knows that, England knows that, New Zealand, I'm sure, has it as well. Yeah, well, I guess that's the kind of Arcadian myth of the of the countryside, right? And I've always that's something I've always wondered about myself with New Zealand, its relationship to the land. What is what is nature, and what is what is the countryside? Uh, there is, uh, yeah, and I mean, they even um, are you familiar with um, uh, uh, you know, "To Die in the Countryside"? It's a film, um, Teriyama Shuji, Japanese film. I have never seen it. You know, I've never seen that movie. No, that's okay. The, um, I mean, just I guess the idea is again this kind of connection to the countryside, um, and and that you know, because a lot of that pre-war, um, you know, that was where the kind of the folk culture emerged from, right? And then that kind right. of moved to the city, and so there there is this folk culture that. I think emerges in a lot of places and it, and it, and it eventually uh, accumulates in, in the city and it comes out again um, as myths and, and kind of pop culture but folk culture today it, 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 where does it live you know I mean what what is in terms of say Korea what what is the I guess, folk culture and, and local culture outside of Seoul look like you know there's there's a few different things I could say about this uh, there is there has been a revival of folk culture often in urban settings, you know, in classical instruments like the gayagum or even the shamanistic routines uh, and dances. I, I was just at a, at a concert in the, at the, uh, the National Museum the day before yesterday, seeing some of these put on. And there, there's a push to fund these things and revive them and make them, make them visible again, or maybe more visible than they ever were in the first place in some instances. But uh, what you said, Cody, reminded me of something that uh, a friend of mine, guy in his, an American guy in his 60s now who's lived both extensively in Japan and Korea since the 80s, said his view of the sort of urban-rural difference in uh, Korea and Japan was that, to his mind, Koreans, well, he said, the Japanese have become an urban people. They've been urban long enough to become an urban people. Koreans are not an urban people. They just happen to live in urban environments. And whether that's right or wrong, I can't say, but I, it stuck with me. Uh, I really, I go around thinking, you know, Koreans, maybe they're still psychologically in some sense rural, but happen to be urbanites. Uh, and the Japanese, they've just become thoroughly urban at this point. Yeah, I, I would be keen uh, to hear your thoughts, Colin. Just um, there's two more things I would like to cover today. Um, one would be like kind of your your understanding and your your thoughts on um, the role of social media and kind of that, again that presentation, that performance of the South uh, in South Korea, uh, and then also your plans for the future. Um, but firstly, yeah, South Korea. Uh, 
social media and that kind of connection with the device? How, how does it work over there? And what, what are people what's it like? Well, Koreans are known worldwide as phone addicts. I think everybody who comes back from Korea mentions on the subway how much they, they're staring at their phones. And, you know, yeah, you're on a, you're on a train in Korea, in, in Seoul these days, and everybody is on their phone. But uh, I know I do, I do keep up with Korean social media to the extent time allows, because A, you can observe many changes in the Korean language. There's so much slang and so much new slang. The rate of slang change and creation is very high here and korean twitter is one way to keep up with it but i did see something funny on korean twitter there was a the guy posting it wrote uh it was like a test question about the reason that foreigners in other in their own countries in europe or the u.s or, or whatever the reason foreigners don't use their phones on the trains on the subway one reason uh a reason marked as incorrect was because they value slow analog life. The reason Mark correct, their phones don't work underground. Yeah, that's 100% <laughs> thought, yeah, it. That's, that's 100%. Yes. <laughs> but this gets at something important is that uh, many Koreans, I don't know many, but there are Koreans who go abroad to Europe or wherever, they see people not on their phones on the train and think, oh, these people are happy. They're not on social media. Uh, they're, they're not miserable like us. And it's, I think many Koreans hold a dear the idea that Koreans are miserable and that Europeans or Americans or whomever, uh, when they can, when they think about these people, th those people are happier. So it's, uh, I think, yeah, the West is, is, is somewhat complicit because I think the West also values the image that the Japanese and, and Koreans are miserable because oftentimes, you know, if an American goes to Japan or Korea and sees everything working, infrastructure better than there was in America, you think, well, they've got to be miserable. They've got to be paying for this somehow, right? Uh, obviously, life must be bad here. If, if the actual physical structures around me are good, everything else must be bad. But also, I mean, among Koreans, there's just a lot of... The perceptions of life in the West are essentially fantasy, for the most part. And it there's bad... Yes, there's plenty of bad aspects of Korean life, it's obvious. But it makes them feel that much worse when they think that everybody's, you know, there's this thing about Denmark now, that it's, Koreans hold it up as the happiest country in the world. What can we learn from Denmark? Or uh, I, I was interviewing a, uh, a, someone, a figure very highly placed in the Korean cultural bureaucracy a while back. And he said flatly, you know, Sweden, look at Sweden. Everybody in Sweden speaks Swedish and then they all speak good English. So Korea should be like that. And I'm thinking, well, Sweden is in Europe, and the population is 10 million. This is not a suitable comparison, but here in Korea, just there's a tendency to compare Korea to wherever makes Korea look bad, uh, and with predictable psychological results. And social media, you know, it amps it up. There's much talk about Instagram all over the world and how it makes people unhappy when they view their friends' lives on Instagram. I have Instagram, but only to use it as a kind of email because most Koreans are on it. So I can contact, you know, interviewees that I want through Instagram. But, you know, seeing the behavior, seeing how people actually look at Instagram and the feelings that uh, arise as a result of it, uh, I'm not sort of scrambling to look at my own feed, shall we say. So I, I, Korea does provide a lot of cautionary, how to put it, cautionary examples about social media use. You know, I've never, I, I would prefer not to go down the road. I see many Koreans go down. It's true. I, I, I would guess it's a little more laid back in the UK or in New Zealand. There's not, it's not quite so intense, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do, I, I think there's something really interesting there. And, and I would like um, 
to, to find out a little bit more about that, just that idea of, of, of the misery of the sort of seeing, seeing oneself, a kind of and, and almost this uh, masochistic kind of thing, right? And, and definitely I, I can connect with that in terms of, um, kind of the Japanese um, aesthetic and then kind of how it is all drawn from this kind of idea of suffering, right? And um, that might seem a bit strange to listeners, but really I think the, the core of all Japanese art uh, can, can be drawn from that you know it's not coming from this kind of euphoric place it's this very much this kind of tough um, miserable existence that leads to these beautiful moments that are like the cherry blossoms just for a moment you know um, mm. but yeah New Zealand it is it is difficult because we again it's so laid back we don't have the cultural apparatus to kind of understand that and so i've always thought you know it's kind of lacking it hasn't been activated it's like making bread without yeast and um, it it becomes very challenging and i find this very difficult to connect with new zealand culture sometimes because it's like what is this place about there's not this driving um artistic aesthetic thing that you can feel everywhere that permeates society it's almost just like well that's what what it is you know and you, you really have to go looking for it or bring it with you you know you do have to. I mean, I, I have these thoughts when I visit Canada. I'm a somewhat frequent visitor to Canada now. My girlfriend has family in Canada. And I, Canada is, is so famous as an, an uninteresting country. <laughs> Almost. That's its very, that is its identity in some sense. But it is fascinating to me that Canada is, is undefined. There's no, Canada doesn't really have an idea and uh, nor really much of anything else to base itself on other than not being the United States in certain sort of minor distinctions. So the, the, the question of what Canada is, it just goes unaddressed, uh, which is a fascinating way to run a country, especially one of that increasing sort of prominence. But, uh, you know, the, I, New Zealand may be similar. It's, it's how to put it, uh, there was, there was a, an American novelist, Lionel Shriver, known for her sort of controversial uh, opinions, but at the same time, she has a perspective on the U.S. that is distinctive. Uh, She lives in England uh, and has for a while. And she says, you know, most countries are just places. Uh, America has an idea, which I guess is, that that is something valuable, but sometimes I think, well, even America is not place enough at some point. It's, Korea is, Korea is, almost 100% place. It doesn't really have an idea. America is more idea than place. I don't know. New Zealand, it sounds like it's more place than idea, yes? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's it's, it's a place, and, and I've really struggled um, personally and artistically to kind of create work here, but I do... Um, what, what, what I have found as an effective method is to take um, kind of this this hat of J- that Japanese aesthetic suffering to, mm. to to give it a name and 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 carry that with me when I'm trying to create and photograph. I've been working on this series of New Zealand houses, and in a way that is a lens for uncovering what is actually uh, a, a hundred years of of very very much uh, a, a, a difficult c- relationship with with the land. You know, this country and its bicultural roots uh, are very much uh, under the microscope at the moment. But there, it's every fracture in society emerges from that uh, uh, that, that relationship uh, between uh, uh, the kind of the people of this, of this land and so it's this kind of collective amnesia in a way which uh, no one seems to see because it's it's so formative to the country itself um, but yeah um, I am keen um, to hear a little bit more about what your plans are for the future Colin and sort of what's next for you uh, you know, I, I do a lot of writing and a lot of language studying so I will be uh, I, I, I've for the past six years, written uh, a Korea blog for the Los Angeles Review of Books, and 
the Los Angeles Review of Books blog itself, of which that was a subset, ends at the end of this year. So I'm doing, I'll be doing more ambitious career pieces for the Los Angeles Review of Books uh, down the line. And as I say, the, uh, the Los Angeles book as well. But after that's done, uh, I think a book on Seoul may well be in order. You know, there's, there are good books on Tokyo, but they're all from the 70s and 80s. And Seoul has had no good books in English written about it that are not travel guides. So I'm strongly considering what could go into that. So much of my writing is city-based, and I do a, a Substack newsletter about city books that others have written. So it's the logical next step uh, to focus on particular cities to continue writing about. And... Uh, I I would like to, when I can resume, going back and forth between Japan and Korea, as I did before, uh, to do that again. But who knows when Japan will reopen again. Maybe you have information I don't, but this is a don't-hold-your-breath situation, I suspect. Yeah, I don't think it'll be any time soon. I think they were they were seriously considering closing the borders for even Japanese citizens who are outside of the country. Oh my. Um, so it's pretty tough. I think they, at the moment, it's closed for all foreigners even those hmm. with um visas not 100 sure on that part but they're doing it as a sort of like rolling basis so they're doing it up until the end of december at the moment the borders are closed and then they'll review it um but as as we saw with the with the olympics and how many times they sort of like kept saying we're going to do it and then oh we're not going to do it we're going to do it and, you know i think japan might take a few more um maybe six more months to have a breather and that's one thing i like about korea versus japan is just korea's had the the two-week quarantine upon re-entry and all that but you can you can get out of that now and i just i don't see korea closing itself to foreigners entirely it's it's just impossible to imagine whereas japan that's been their identity. Uh, yeah. It was before the late 19th century. It was being closed. And yeah. Korea had, was closed for a while, too. But it just modern Korea is so tied up with the rest of the world, and particularly the West. Uh, it would be, it's almost like that's a form of suicide if Korea were to really close hard. But Japan is self-sufficient in ways that a lot of other countries are simply not. And they can get away with it. So they do. They can get away with it. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, well, it, it's actually you know I, I'd like to um, I'd I'd like to ask you where people can find more of your work, Colin, because you are such a prolific writer, and um, I've gone really far back in your in your archives. I found some really interesting stuff. You you wrote this fantastic article about uh, Ozu. Um, oh, it was I think oh, oh. back in 2012. It was like really long ago. You wrote this. Um, yeah, it's been a it's been a minute since I've written about him. Yeah, you were talking about his pillow shots and how sort of, you know, he's the most Japanese of all Japanese directors. Well, I should say I was quoting Donald Ritchie saying that, but I, I agree with Donald Ritchie when he says that. Yes, but this is what I actually wanted to talk about, because if you go down into the comments on that post, um, mm -hmm. so for everybody listening, if you search for Colin Marshall and go an introduction to Yasujiro Ozu, um, there is this fantastic... Um, I don't even know story happening in the comments of this post. It's <laughs> it's wonderful. So um, I've never read yeah. the comments. It would be news to me too. Have you not read them? No, they're they're not for they're not for me. They're for they're for, for the commenters, people. right? For they're for each other, aren't they? So for these for the for, for the listeners, this article is just all about the the film director Ozzy and um, Bradley Elfman 
says on February 6th, 2013, instead of quoting experts who are full of nonsense, like Ozu is the most Japanese filmmaker, Ozu, he just goes on to say, like, you know, don't say these cliche things about Ozu. Ozu. Why don't you watch his movies and、uh, simply write your own response? Which is,、uh, it's a silly comment. Anyway, the, the best thing is how this takes a twist here where、mm. Maggie Elfman posts a reply and says, Bradley, this may seem like an odd spot to find you, but it sounds like you. If you are 72, you may be my brother. Your name and phone, which I have not had the nerve to dial, kept popping up on my contacts yesterday. I took this as a sign or a kick in the rear to contact you today. If you are the one, you are the last of my immediate family. If not, please excuse、Whoa. me. It sounds like spam, but I think it's real. <laughs> this, is, this is quite a story.、Ooh. So that was in 2013. And then in 2015, somebody says, Maggie, I need to know, is he your brother? <laughs> I'm wishing you all the best. <laughs> and then Chris in 2016 says, 2016, and still no closure. Seems kind of relevant、no、to Yasujiro Ozu's movies. Wow, this is、it. something. This is something. I, this, is, this post was on Open Culture, a site I've been writing for for nearly 10 years. And they have a very wide readership. So I, I, I'm not surprised that in the comments you would see this kind of thing happening. That story is impressive, I will say.、Uh, you know, most of the comments are just people fighting with each other. So that's why I usually don't see them. But this is something else. This is, this is a treasure. It's so wonderful. It should be saved in the Internet Archive.、Um, but yes,、yeah, sorry, going back to my question, please, how can people find you on the Internet? Uh, there's a website, colinmarshall.org, and then Twitter, at Colin Marshall. The, everything can be found through there. Those are, those are the main venues I use my own site, and then Twitter. But yep,、yeah, it's Colin Marshall at either one. Nice. Excellent. Well, so, thank you so much for your time. It was, it was good to catch up. I, 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 I've got probably a little bit more watching and reading to do. You've sort of spurred me off. I've got some notes here around some of these、um, uh, people that you've mentioned. So I'm going to investigate that a little bit more. But it's uh, definitely uh, got me thinking about. Uh, South Korea, and again, a, a place I haven't thought about、uh, in, in a little while. So、um, it's been super interesting to get your thoughts on that. Thank you. I'm glad to hear it, and thank you very much for the invitation. It's been very nice chatting. Yeah, it's been a wonderful chat. Thank you so much. Thanks, Colin. All right, catch you later. Thank you. Take care.